Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hi everyone and welcome to the 10th episode of Pebble in the Pond podcast. Before we get underway, I just want to say thank you, uh, shout out to the listeners, thanks very much for being in touch with us, giving us some feedback uh, and uh, and for your support over the first nine episodes. It's been uh, great fun and looking forward to continuing to deliver you more meaningful episodes on mental health into the future. Today's episode is with Barbara Disley and when it comes to mental health, uh, a question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we really looking at the bigger picture? And Barbara, who's a former panel member of the Confidential Listening and Assistance Service in New Zealand, has heard the stories of many people, in fact, over a 1,000 people who have experienced abuse and neglect while in state care. Wow. Uh, She's currently the chief executive of Emerge Aotearoa, which is a large non-government mental health, disability and social housing provider in New Zealand. In 2011, she was made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her services to mental health. So join us this week uh, as I talk to Barbara and discuss the importance of integrating new ways of providing mental health services that address not only the medical needs of people, but also, I guess, the wider range of social, housing, employment and financial needs and availabilities. So without further ado, welcome Barbara to the podcast. Thanks, Barbara. All right. Let me just start that there. All right, welcome Dr. Barbara Disley to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. We are really pleased to have you on board uh, this podcast and uh, and really lucky to have you at our conference. So thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No, that's okay. So we are, so in the research uh, and the pleasure I've had in reading a lot about your, I guess, the, the background that you have, I mean, there's so many things that you've uh, achieved in a relatively short amount of time. Now, I'm sure that may not seem that way for you, but um, do you want to take us back to where it started? How did you first get involved in mental health? Where did the passion come from? Well, it came quite a long time ago, and here in Australia, actually, because um, out of university, I, I went to work at Marsden Hospital in Sydney, which was a large hospital for... Um, people who had been on Pete and Milson Island back in those days with wow. mental health and disability issues because people were all messed up together really <laughs> and so um, they'd been moved into the old King's College in Parramatta Yes. and there were 270 adults on the adult side and then there was a hospital for children and there were 500 children in that it sort of seems unbelievable now but that's where I started and um, I was the one social educator. And that was a great role because um, not only was I responsible for looking at education and learning programs, 
but it also meant that I was part of the leadership team for the hospital. And I was very young, yes. straight out of university, very green, very naive, very enthusiastic, but that's where I started. And uh, so it was like being thrown into the pond. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that would have been an experience at such a young age. And how did that evolve? How did your role then, like what, what happened after that? Or how did you really start to, I know you ended up in New Zealand, but yep. what happened? I, I guess um, I really only was there for a couple of years. And I think I realised that trying to work in a very large hospital system was not really going to um, create a lot of change. So I went into community health and went to the um, worked for the Department of Health in um, in Sydney. No, in Grafton. Oh, in Grafton. South Wales, oh, great. And lived both in a community house um, wow. with five people. We had like a, a people living in their own separate dwellings in this large house, yeah. large old Queenslander style house. So, and lived spot. there, yeah, and then worked at the community health centre as well. And how many years were you in Grafton for? Three years. Three years. Yep. And then I went from there, did my PhD um, the next year. I had been doing that all along. And then I went to New Zealand. And in New Zealand, I um, started my career at the Mental Health Foundation and was fully involved in mental health by then. Yeah, so uh, so from Grafton, uh, you obviously started a family in Grafton, yep. did you? Okay. Yep, my so children were born there. Yep. Born in Grafton, and then you moved over to Auckland? Yep, to Waiheke Island. Oh, great, great spot. And, and so from there, did you then go straight into the CEO role of the Mental Health Foundation? No, I went in as the Deputy Director, Okay. and then into the Chief Executive and Director role. And then into from there, I went into the Mental Health Commission and I chaired yes. the first Mental Health Commission, which was a great job. There's, uh, I've got so many questions for you uh, around all this. As, as far as the Mental Health Foundation goes, um, what, what was your role there and, and how did you, uh, I know it was, it was, this was the early 90s, was it? Yep. Is that around 91 or so? Yep. What, what was the state that that foundation was in or the state of mental health in New Zealand at that point? It was a very, um, the Mental Health Foundation was a peak body and it was very small, but it was quite pivotal in changing attitudes. It had a very high media profile and the previous director, Max Abbott, had uh, generated that, so I came in after him. And so we were the go-to organisation when the media wanted any comments in the mental health context. At the time, um, the mental health context was going through some rather large changes. We yep. still had the big hospitals and yes. um, we, we, the Mental Health Foundation, was running advocacy programs in those, some of those old psychiatric hospitals. And it was then in the early 90s and around that time that they started to move much more into community care and okay. to um, closing the hospitals. And of course, we went through a hiatus there where people really just got put out um, and the services weren't necessarily there. Yes. And the hospitals were closed. So there was a lot of dislocation, a lot of people in boarding houses, wow. poor quality. Um, yeah, so it was a time of real transition, perhaps yes. similar to what we're experiencing again now. 
Yeah, was, that was about the same time the initial inquiry, the Mental Health Commission, uh, is that right, that happened around yep. that time? Is, is that how a little re- bit later that okay. there was a couple of very serious incidents. Yes. And a, uh, a Judge Ken Mason undertook an inquiry yes. then. And his main recommendation was that mental health was um, within the health system was basically being disregarded and money wasn't ring fenced, it was leaking out of mental health, there wasn't a sense of direction and clarity around where we were going. Um, there was a strategy, but people didn't know what that meant on the ground. So he had recommended that there be this body, um, the Mental Health Commission, and that yep. it be charged with um, providing leadership to the sector, but also with monitoring and reporting on all of the agencies, including the Ministry of Health, yes. that were responsible for mental health and providers. Um, and um, also um, looking at the workforce and how we could develop a workforce and looking at stigma and discrimination. And so, and that was set up in 96, and I was fortunate enough to chair that yes. with um, two other people, someone who had lived experience and a Māori um, uh, member of the panel. And it was a really exciting time. Yeah, so tell me about that experience, uh, being part of that uh, inaugural, the Mental Health Commission over yep. there. How did... Uh, establishing something, I guess, is not easy. No. But uh, tell me about the cha- some of the challenges that you faced uh, and how you overcome some of them. I think, to me, when I look back, um, it, it was a time when people really didn't know what a commission should be doing. So although we had very clear terms um, of reference, etc., um, we ran really hard. And so we looked at the strategy and we thought... Um, this is, you know, it was a bit, it was a very broad-based sort of strategy, saying we need more and better mental health services. Well, if you're going to monitor that, what does that look like? Yeah. And so I said, well, you know, unless we know what we're looking at, you know, like what's that about? What sort yeah. of services do we need? What's the whole pathway for services and for care for people? Um, what's the values that should be driving those? We should be having a recovery approach. This yes. isn't about just keeping people in a static state. Um, What sort of beds and legs do we need to do all of that work? And so we did a major piece of work which became called, uh, was called the Blueprint for Mental Health. And it set that out and it said, this is where we're visioning. It gave direction. Gave a sense of direction, sense of purpose. It talked about discrimination. It talked about cultural responsiveness. It talked about recovery. It talked about the value of peers and the work that peers do and the support that peers can provide. So back then, it sort of started to shine a few lights on areas and, um, and we worked very hard with the whole of the mental health sector in developing that blueprint. So it didn't come out of the commission, yes. it came out of the sector itself. Wow. So at the end of the time, we took us 18 months, we did a draft and then we put it out and said, tell us what's wrong with it. This is what will drive us, but tell us what's wrong with it and we'll come back and review it. And it got very wide sector buying. It even got buying from um, consecutive governments who both went into an election in 98 saying, we'll fund the blueprint. I'm not sure they knew what they were saying then um, because (laughs) we then costed it and we were being, you know, the amount of money we needed was double what we were currently getting in the whole system. 
But, it, but what it did is it led to 10 years of what they call blueprint money, which came into mental health, was totally ring-fenced. This is from 98 to through, 2008. Yep. And it led to incremental increases in services. And have you ever seen that before in uh, in oh, government policy or budget? Seen, I haven't yeah. seen that before. No. That's amazing. And so to be a part of that is something to be yeah. really quite yeah. quite proud of. And yeah. did, did that have anything to do... The Mental Health Act was in 92, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So did that have anything, any influence? Did it have any... The structure? Did, what? How did that influence or uh, have a role in the National Mental Health Commission? Um, not a big role okay. because um, the, we, we weren't primarily um, in, engaged in individual people's, um, in, you know, the act and whether people okay. got held under the act. There was a tribunal that did that. But what it did, what that act did, it allowed or, or en- enabled people to be supported within the community. Yes. Um, and which, which uh, on, a comp- on a compulsory treatment order. Now, that can be a good or a bad thing. Okay. You know? You mean the access to people in the community? Yes. Okay. So people could, didn't necessarily have to be, um, they, the, the Act allowed people to be in the community and, and promoted that. Whereas up until then, anybody who had, uh, was deemed to need to be under the Act was hospitalised. Oh, wow. And so that the Mental Health Act allowed people to be tr- treated in the community. And, and that meant that people could be in their own home and, and if they did need compulsory treatment, were held under the Act. That's, that can be a two-edged sword. Yes. Because um, it took away the responsibility government had to make mm. sure everybody was well-housed. Yes. Um, and so we had to do a lot of work then to say, what about the housing part of it? It's all right to say people don't have to be in a hospital or mm. a health facility to be treated. Where do they go? They do need to be yeah. in in a home, and many people didn't have a home, and the government didn't necessarily have that responsibility. So we had to work quite hard then on housing and mm. make sure that community housing um, grew. And that is when the non-government organisations stepped in and a whole lot of community housing and community-led um, organisations, organisations started to grow. And they, they then quickly grew to end up having a third of the mental health resource was going into NGOs. What what year are we roughly talking? Early two thousands? Yeah, right, okay. well, in, in mid mid nineties through okay. to um, early two thousands. So that evolved over that ten year yep. period. Yeah. Okay, and your role with the uh, mental health commission uh, finished in two thousand and two. Yep. Uh, and then you went into the you were then the deputy secretary, uh, ministry of education. Is that yes. correct? Yes, I had responsibility. Um, for special education and was the, um, the Deputy Secretary in New Zealand is a Deputy Chief Executive um, okay. of Education and so um, it was a very large operational role because all of the people who were involved in special education were employed by the Ministry and so there were about two and a half, three thousand people that were employed That's amazing. to work out into schools yeah. and do early intervention, work with 
with um, young children um, and you know, run a network of special education. So was that mental health focused or was that more for special needs? No, it was more broadly special education needs. But but within that, there were were mental health, um, young people with mental health needs. Yes. Um, But primarily health provided the clinical aspects of that. We did run um, uh, through the special education services um, services for young people with autism and young uh, people with behavioural needs. We had sort of behavioural support teams that worked out in the school. And did that role share its fair uh, fair challenges? Like were there a fair few challenges that were coming? Oh, there were lots of challenges in that role. Because in any area where you, particularly in the area of special education, where you have narrow gateways to, for people to be able to get wraparound support in a yes. schooling context, there are always many more people and young people who need that support than there ever is the resource to be able yes. to provide it. So there was always challenges in that role. And did you feel then as well that the majority of people that did get the help were obviously the, the top few percent yeah. that were um, on the end of the yeah. spectrum that needed it most, but then you were struggling to fill the gap behind them. Yeah, yeah. And the way the funding worked was that the intensive wraparound money was centrally held and people had to, young, you know, children had to reach a particular criteria or need to get access to that resource. And it really only worked out about 1% of the school population. The rest of the money went to schools themselves yes. as part of their generic funding and supposedly they then use that for children with special education needs. And it was really challenging because some schools did that and did it really well, and other schools um, didn't. Yes. Um, weren't welcoming of children who were going to um, consume more resource from their point of view. Was it financial barriers? Was it social barriers? I think what? it was both. Okay. I think, um, you know, some schools took a lot of children and particularly children were very welcoming to children who um, did require support for their learning or had behaviour needs or, um, or, or, or um, Asperger's or, or autism. And, and so many schools were very, very supportive and saw them, themselves as having a responsibility to respond to the children in their communities. And, but, but there were also schools who were not well, that welcoming, really. Yes. Um, and many of those schools um, would, would put barriers up, really. I yes. mean, children did um, behave poorly at school. They would often put them out of the school and other schools would pick them up. Yeah. So there were always challenges and many, many challenges for families. So it seemed very siloed then, did it, amongst yeah. the schooling? Yeah, it was very siloed. Yeah. And when I did first come into that role, there had been, um, they had just gone through a period of closing a number of the special classes and parents were very upset about that. So there was, there was an environment of contention, really. <laughs> Did you ever think at this point, because uh, obviously now we're sort of 2005 to 2007, yeah. did you ever think when you first started in Sydney at the hospital that that's where you would um, you would be currently in that role? No. 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 I, I never really imagined where I would end up. I just have been fortunate enough to have had opportunities. And I guess 
um, dive into them, really. Yeah. I mean, my view is, you know, if you wait for everything to be perfect, it won't ever be. So you take what you've got and you run as hard as you can. And, and I look back and I think that's what happened at the Mental Health Foundation. Yes. We created um, a, a focus on particular needs and, um, and we couldn't address them all, but we were very politically active and got yes. government looking at issues and raised awareness. In, in the commission it was likewise. You know, had really good people working with us and, um, and we just said, these are our terms of reference, let's run as hard as we can. We've got a chance yeah. here and keep government in the loop and keep them behind us and keep it heading in a, in a positive direction. Has the, the health of children been something that has always been a, a passion in the back of your mind throughout that? Absolutely. I mean, children are just, well, well children and also, um, I mean, I've always had a vision that we would have a world where every child would be nurtured and loved and cared for. Yes. And that's, that's a driving vision for me um, because I guess when you work in many of the areas that I've worked, you see the damage that happens and yes. the lives that get distorted. Yes. Because children don't have those early years aren't nurturing, their needs aren't well met. And so there's so much we can do if we get, if every child gets a good start. There's so much difference we can make. It's, uh, it's, it's inspiring just to hear that, and obviously you, you've shared a lot of advice with us there already. Uh, the, the passion you have towards that and the vision that you're sharing is, is truly admirable. So uh, we need more people like you out there doing this sort of stuff. So we appreciate the work you're doing, um, even from uh, an Australian point of view. We, uh, so after, after, you, after that role, 2007, yep. you then did some consulting work, is that correct? I did do some consulting work, yep. yep. And uh, I did, as part of that work, it was, it was in education, um, with an educational um, consulting and evaluation company. So I did quite a bit of work in the international world. Um, and so I had the op- I went to the Middle East and reviewed their teacher education programs there. I went to Malaysia and looked at a student education and leadership program there. Um, I wow. went to Nauru, um, wow. where the Australian government were working at the time, and reviewed their special education program and um, did some advice on that. So I had the opportunity to really get out and do a few other things and that was what great experience. quite different. Yep. Um, I also in New Zealand reviewed, um, we over there have what we call the Accident Compensation Corporation Yes. and people who have been um, sexually assaulted or abused Yes. get their support through that agency and so I was asked also to chair a review of that agency and because the sensitive claims pathway had become so closed and narrow that to get in meant many people um, were, going, were, were without. going without and so the government did a review of that and I chaired that review. So. Was was that the confidential listing? No, that, no, that's that, was, that was separate. Okay. And the confidential listing and assistance service is a bit like um, your historical abuse yes. um, inquiry, although it wasn't an inquiry. It was originally set up with a, with a panel and we went around the country um, 
and it was a place where people could come who had been in the care of the state and been abused at the hands of the state. Yes. And it was, that was a really amazing role. Um, to be in a position, I, uh, the chair, I was a panel member, um, but I chaired the panels in prison because the um, chair of the overall panel was a judge. And so many of the people who would have been in prison could have been before her as a judge. So I chaired the right. prison um, panels. And what was that experience like? It was very challenging. Yes. It was, a, um, I couldn't have done it really, except that it was a very rewarding um, experience. It, I, I, I initially thought, Mm, just you know, people having somewhere to come and and tell what Best happened story, to yeah. them um, won't do a lot of changing for them. But because they need a lot more than that, they need yes. somebody to actually do something, compensate them, provide them with counselling, do all of that. We could provide some counselling, but what I found was the experience of people coming before a panel, and there were usually three of us on a panel. Yes. Um, we supported them very well before, so they knew what was going to happen. And then for them to have a period of time that was theirs, and for them to be deeply respected, um, and we worked hard to make sure people were, um, and to really have the opportunity to put their truth in front of people, sometimes for the first time, particularly people in prisons. Many of them hadn't told anybody, most of them were men. Um, and the horrific abuse that many people had experienced. And for many, they said it was the first time that they had told what had happened to them, but also the first time they felt they'd been believed. And that, that and we, all we could, you could really do was creating the environment that was safe. Trust. Yeah, build yeah. trust. And often, I think, to be able to say to somebody, this should not have happened to you. Mm. You were a child. Yes. Um, and this should not have happened to you. Yes. Was, the, for many, the beginning of a healing journey. And that was very powerful. I found it extremely powerful. And was there a process following that that, that yes. did follow that up? That we then supported people. Government got engaged a bit more. Okay. And there were compensation avenues for people. Okay. Um, and people could also, we could navigate and support people to get into counselling support and um, uh, often to you know just to do basic things like get their notes to write their story to do whatever might work for them yeah. and um, and you can't change the past no. for people but I think to have had government um, uh, acknowledge that they should not what happened shouldn't have happened they play a role. was very powerful for many of them to get some compensation, yes. which was minimal really on the scale of things, but what that did was it validated that that 
what had happened shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yep. So there was some ownership there. Absolutely. And now we have initiated, the government, have, the new government, have initiated a royal commission um, to look into the whole area, as you wow. have had here. Yes. Yeah. And so the rewarding part of that was seeing that there was some action following the listening that you that you were undertaking. Yep. Uh, and to see people themselves yes. go from being sort of cowing, as many were, yes. head down, um, even within a period of just sitting in front of you to see people lift their head up Postures. and see themselves being acknowledged um, and... Uh, I just found that, um, well, transforming really yes. for me. Yes. Not for them, but yeah, also yeah. for me. Yeah. That, I mean, that's uh, that again would have been uh, a very challenging position for Absolutely. you to be in, but I do understand. Uh, I don't pretend to understand what you were going through, but I mean, to see the changes and the impact of just being able to see people talk about this. Uh, and the release uh, and uh, that it must have they must have felt by doing that process so uh, so so I mean this is again a, a journey that I guess you wouldn't be you wouldn't have sat down and, and just really mapped this out at any point no, in your no, life no. this is <laughs> uh, no, no ability to do that I was going to be a maths teacher is that, uh, is that right yeah I had a son um, in my last year of school which wasn't what you were supposed to do and um, <laughs> And so I decided I was going to be a maths teacher because I thought I could have school holidays off. And so I went through <laughs> university um, with, my, with my son. And, um, with an education degree? Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's what I did. Yeah. Ended up doing an education degree and going off into on that bent, really, special education and psychology. So I didn't end up ever being a maths teacher. But, you know, so how do you plan that? You don't. And opportunities come and you... Well, you've certainly you've certainly taken taken that and ran with it, and uh, I mean the the accolades. I, I know also in was it in two thousand eleven that you were made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit yes, I was. for your services. Is that I correct? Was. Yeah. Uh, there's some really uh, some high caliber prestigious people that are that have been received received that award previously. Wow. So I mean that's some great company there to be alongside. Well, and and I think in many ways. The, I accepted the uh, award because it was for um, primarily for contribution to mental health. Yes. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that mental health is acknowledged as a really um, important, rewarding area for people to work in. And so, yeah, I, I felt very humbled and. Um, Privileged to have been acknowledged in that way. For well, doing well, congratulations. Like that. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> and I guess that there's. I mean, you can't set out to achieve those sorts of awards. Yeah. That, that's obviously got to come about as a as a indirectly as a result of the contributions that you're making to the community uh, and civilians of New Zealand. So, uh, so well done on that award. Uh, and uh, and um, as I said again, I'm, I'm really quite honoured to have you here with me discussing this. If we move now into to, uh, the mental health and addiction uh, uh, inquiry that yeah. you, uh, again, you, were, you had some really high caliber company on this panel. It's a very good company. Uh, 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 wow, I mean, the people I see that were members of that uh, inquiry panel is just, uh, is just amazing. But I mean, 
in your appointment on the panel itself, was it something that you were very proud to be a part of? I was surprised okay. to be asked to be part of it. Um, How so? Well, because I think in some ways um, I, I, I'd been a little bit unsure about whether we should have another mental health inquiry. I, I, I just was, things were, had, had in, in stood still for quite a while in New Zealand yes. and I felt we weren't really headed anywhere and I was worried that we could spend another 12 or 18 months standing still yes. and so for me I thought you know do we really need to do an inquiry or should we just get a you know cross section of people in the room and get ourselves organized and work out what needs to be done and government get behind that so I had been um, I'd made those comments and I hadn't for a minute thought that I would be asked to be part of it, but um, I was, and I did reconsider, and I, I'm glad I did, um, because the panel was, as you say, an amazing group of people. Um, Professor Ron Patterson chaired it, and he'd been a previous Health and Disability Commission. Sir Mason Jury was on it, um, and he's been a leader and a very strong advocate for Maori and Indigenous models of here and um, and we had um, a, a Pacific input and um, so Jemima Tietia Sip is a professor of Maori and Pacific Studies at Auckland University. We had um, Josiah Tuala Malihi who is a young Pacific leader and um, and Dean Rangihuna who is uh, works in one of our hospital systems in New Zealand and is Maori and has lived experience. The cultural diversity uh, among that, I mean, it's just amazing and something I think New Zealand is doing, uh, you know, compared to Australia, quite uh, further ahead than us. Uh, and uh, what, a, what a great initiative. Uh, and was, was your fear of being involved on it initially because of a lack of action from the previous inquiry that followed or the lack of support no, that I they think, had? I think it was more, um, I was just worried that we'd spend more time looking than doing. Okay. Um, and I thought there were enough things obviously needing to be done that more looking wouldn't change what those things were. On the other hand, I think the process, looking back, the process we went through was... Um, in itself started galvanising people to action. Yes. And so um, we, we were charged by the government to get out and listen to the people. So we went all over New Zealand and spent a lot of time in town halls and on Marae, um, visited schools, visited hospitals, visited NGOs, community organisations, um, and had a lot of public meetings. And a lot of people responded and got engaged. To give people an idea, I mean, I read the report uh, and it's quite, it's amazing some of the stuff that's come out of this inquiry. But just briefly, over 2,000 people attended public meetings at 26 locations around the country. Over 5,200 submissions were made to the inquiry. Over 400 meetings were held uh, and, uh, and you engaged uh, such an arrange, uh, a wide, diverse... Uh, sectors of uh, New Zealand and from public health to uh, service providers to community organisations to cultural organisations, researchers. 
I mean, that's, that's a lot of work yep. for the panel. It was a lot of work. It was nine months of very intensive work. But if you put your hand up for these things, that's what you do. Yeah. And I think in many ways, it was the people who themselves had lived experienced and accessed those services that came to those public meetings and their family members, the whānau, um, who came, many of them had such terribly distressing stories that you, you know, we could only then really consider at a deep level what needed to shift and change. So, um, yeah. And so when we look at the difference between this inquiry and the previous one, mm. I, I do, uh, a big part of it is putting the people at the heart. Yep. Uh, and getting out there. And if there's one thing that I've seen that's consistent with you and the way you approach things is is talking, getting to the heart of, of the population or the people with the challenges uh, and actually listen to what they have to say and and do a bottom-up approach yep. rather than a top-down. Is that... Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and one of the... You know, when we, in, in the inquiry, we, we, there is a little section where we set out a vision of the world as we would want it to be in the future. Yes. And, um, and that was informed by a very strong submission that had come through from um, a large group of people who have lived experience of mental health distress or addiction and who were really clear that they want a louder voice. They don't, they don't want things done to them anymore. They want to be able to really co-construct what's happening both at a system level but also at an individual and a personal level. They want to work in partnership. So they recognise an opportunity for influence. Absolutely. And they felt that they actually really had a voice that something was going to change as a result of being heard. Is that correct? Yep. And we were really clear that going forward, all providers, all providers, government and uh, non-government, must be, be better listeners and better at working with people and starting where they are and looking at what they need in their lives. Do you find it fascinating that a lot of approaches, uh, in whether it's in policy or in response to uh, challenges out there in, in the community, are top down, like they're governed, they're determined by people that aren't really at the heart of the challenge itself. Uh, and so do you feel like the process and the team that you had, as well as Judge Ken Mason, uh, I read his advice to you was to listen to the people. Did that have an influence on, on the approach that you also took? Uh, it absolutely was um, a key platform and plank of how we work. And um, Ken Mason was, um, you know, he did the, uh, the early inquiry that led to the first commission. That, that, um, but he was really clear that the people have the solutions. Yes. People generally have solutions. They know what they want in their life. And um, it raises a whole lot of issues then around privilege, you know. Um, and that often when we are privileged, it's hard to, to really, you know, look through other people, through the lens of others. And so we started as a, to say, it's really, you know, we should be privileging lived experience. You know, privileged people have the opportunity to influence. They have some power 
um, they have often status and position. So we should be privileging the people who are actually actually going to be used in the services because that's why the services should be there. That's why the support should be there. And so we started to think in that sort of way. Yep. And it changed what we ended up with, really. It's, uh, I mean, the, the outcomes that have come out of that inquiry, uh, I mean, there's so, I mean, there's, I guess you've narrowed it down to 10 uh, fundamental principles yep. that you really want to highlight and focus on. Yeah. Did, uh, with, with the focus on mental health and addiction, so addiction wasn't originally a part of the initial inquiry, what made addiction, was there, a, was, did someone identify the comorbidity or the relationship between mental health and addiction, or is this a, a problem that New Zealand has been faced with for some time, drugs and, al- and other, uh, alcohol and other drugs? I, I think we have seen the impact of um, drugs and alcohol and the impact that um, excessive use has on people's mental health. And, um, and increasingly, for many, the whole thing gets a bit sort of like swamp with all this yeah, stuff together. interrelated. And so, um, and New Zealand was concerned about it, particularly many of our rural communities were very concerned about the impact of um, methamphetamine. Yes. Um, and we had seen a real change in the profile of drug use in New Zealand. Uh, particularly over the last five to ten years, where um, you know cannabis had been one of the major concerns. Yes. And uh, police have done a very good job um, on on that, um, restricting access to cannabis. But but methamphetamine came in, and of course now it's so cheaply made. It's so it seems to be so. <clears throat> easily um, accessible and able to get into our countries and um, and it was cheap got to the point where it was one of the cheaper drugs around and the damage it was doing to families so we had families coming and saying you know we have we're, we're grandparents caring for children yes um, our children are missing in action you know in many of the community halls it was it was often mothers, mainly mothers, um, saying, my son or daughter is missing. You know, I don't know where they are. I know that they're in the grip of methamphetamine addiction. Um, we know that, um, but we don't know where they are. We don't know what they're doing. What age are we looking at here? Uh, I think um, quite a widespread age. Okay. You know, we think it's just young people, but it's not. Yes. And the other issue we came across was um, the impact of, it, of alcohol. Yes. And, and that's probably is, is equally, if not more, um, damaging. And um, we just had a recent report in New Zealand come out saying that young people are actually drinking less um, and that a lot of the health damage being done is 40-plus age group where people have the money and are drinking a lot more alcohol and have normalised it. You know, yes. the baby boomers, the people my age, yes. really, who are drinking excessively and our health system is seeing the impact of that in both physical health 
um, issues, but also in mental health, in anxiety, in depression, trauma, um, trauma, and um, and accidents. And so, um, we we have a love affair, a bit like Australia. Really, yes. we do have a love affair with alcohol in New Zealand. A drinking culture. Yep, and many people like to say, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with alcohol." But have a look at that group over there who are using drugs. Yes. Um, lock them up. Yes. Whereas, in fact, if you looked at where the costs were, if you looked at where the human misery started, it often starts with alcohol. And the relationship alcohol plays in family violence is that is that Absolutely. a is that a big that's uh, a really challenge big in New Zealand. It's a very big challenge. Yeah. It's a very big challenge in New Zealand. We have, you know, it's, but and and it's a gateway for many young people into into other drugs, you know, to meet them um, in communities. They start really early um, yes. with alcohol. It's very available. It's addictive. Very accessible. It is addictive. It also, you know, we know a lot more about developing brains these days. Yes. So we're starting to see young people damage those their brain before it's developed. And so some of those gateways, I think as a community we've got to... Um, We've got to own some of this yep. and start to have the hard conversations. And it's, it's, it's very challenging in, in terms of, you know, we want to take a harm minimisation approach to, to drug and alcohol use as well. We don't want, we want people to feel that if they Support. are in the grip of something, they can come. Mm. And trauma sits underneath a lot of addictions. So, how, how we, we don't re-traumatise people, how we don't necessarily just put them in prison, how do we actually create an environment where we look at, mm. how do we minimise the harm? How do we look at the human misery that sits underneath this? And the rehabilitation process, what yeah. is, how is it going? And, and, and that's, so I guess there's a lot of stuff to look at with that, to Absolutely. really put under the microscope and say, Absolutely. well, if we had to really break this down and look at every aspect, and is that is that how you looked at this inquiry? So you went out there, you spoke to the community, you identified the ten core recommendations. Yeah. Which do you want to briefly just read them out, just so we we understand? Well, the 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 things we said was we basically have to expand access and choice yes. across the whole of the mental health and addiction system. Access to rural and remote communities, access not just to the cities. Yep. You know, you can't get in. And when you do get in, you don't have a lot of choice. You get what somebody's delivering to you. So, yes. and and if if you want, if you're Maori, you should be able to get services that speak to you. Yes, understand and, your culture. Yep. Yeah. That are that are not only responsive but are in, imbued with with your values and your worldview. Um, we also um, in New Zealand, and I think you've done a lot better here. Um, we we need to do a lot more in primary in the primary healthcare community space yes. around supporting people early rather than waiting for them to fall off completely in yep. the heap. And so we... Is, we, we is that training or education-based? It's is everything. It? Okay. But we also, you know, we've got some quite good models yes. where people can get access to talk therapy, health improvement coaches, group yep. counselling, group support, a GP when they need one, um, and, a, and a community support worker to help them get out and find what's in their community and connect people, you know, get greater connection happening. Yes. And so we've got to do a lot more there. Strengthening the non-government sector, you know, because that's about building communities. Yeah. Yeah. And the government can't do it by themselves. Can't do it all. 
Mm. No government can do it all. Yeah. So how we start to build, and we've got some great communities. Provide resources to them yep. to help some support. Some really good community stuff happening in New Zealand, particularly with on Marae, yep. with Māori, you know, wraparound services. So why wouldn't you bring a lot of the mental health stuff into those spaces and places where people naturally are? You know, that's what, not say go over there to get your service. People live their lives here. So there's, there was, that, was, that was another whole area, strengthen the NGO sector, um, enhance wellbeing, promotion and prevention, do a whole lot of stuff earlier. Be more active yep. in, in saying what we, what we do want rather yep. than trying to stop what we don't want. Is that yep. what you... Yep, yep. yep. Okay. And, um, and we've got a government that's doing that. We've got a government that just did a wellbeing budget and they're very focused on making a better place for children. Um, and we've got a lot of work to do there, I have to say. Putting people <laughs> at the centre. Yes. And so really looking at how do people get, how do we connect people? How yes. do we build up around people rather than do things to people? And so there was a whole lot around that. Um, taking strong action on alcohol and other drugs. That's going to be a challenge. Because a lot of people, we're quite punitive. Yes. So how we get a more harm minimisation responsive approaches and particularly to alcohol. Is that community led as well as government reform as well? Yes. Is that what you're yes. looking at? Okay. Yes. Communities want a bit more power over um, alcohol is very accessible. Yes. I mean it's in every supermarket mm. um, you can just walking off the street it's, it's lots and lots of alcohol outlets and so but we do know increasing price makes a difference. Yes. Um, but nobody really wants to pay more for their glass of wine, do they? <laughs> um, so anyway, we've got some big discussions on that one. Um, suicide is a major concern. We do have a high rate of suicide. It's in both our young people and our older men. And you set the target to reduce it by 20% by we 2030. We did, but government did, didn't accept that recommendation. They uh -huh. didn't want a target. And part of it was, they say, every, every, any suicide, we should have no, like, any suicide... Um, is a negative and so they, they, we did put a target it was debatable whether a target helps or doesn't help okay. I guess the panel's view was it's currently stable or going up anything to go down would be better Yeah. but you know that's not a biggie Okay. but um, we've, we recommend a whole lot of things around yes. suicide reforming the mental health act Yes. And, and again, that is about how do we get compulsion, um, less compulsion in our system, less of the aversive practices in our system, and a much more rights-based approach to supporting people, supporting them early. You know? We often use, our, unfortunately, our Mental Health Act because people haven't been able to get help early enough. Yes. And that's not good. And um, then establishing a mental health and wellbeing commission, which is re-establish yes. an independent watchdog to look at what's happening and to make constant recommendations and work across the system and provide a bit of leadership to getting things happening. And that's overhauling the existing... Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And, um, and then there was a whole raft and range of wider issues that we were looking at, like trauma-informed care and how do you get a much more centred system right across and get all government agencies, housing, looking at specifically at housing, 
how do you get the social determinants addressed? And so, because it is the social determinants. Yes, poverty. It's what creates economic. human misery yeah. and, and, and adversity and stress. So how do we get a stronger government action around those things? So, so the, the inquiry, this finished in November last year, I believe, yep. 2018. And then in May this year, we've had the government that announced the wellbeing budget, which you yep. alluded to earlier, with a record $1.9 billion over five years to mental health. Yep. To, how, 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 what was your reaction to that? I mean, did that make this whole process worthwhile? Did, did that help give you the resources that you think this needs to take off and put this plan into action? It certainly, um, money isn't everything, but it helps. Yes. And so it certainly um, has given um, a sense of optimism that we will be able to do some different things and there will be resources. The challenge with that will be getting the workforce. Yes. Um, we might be sneaking some of yours. Um, <laughs> but um, getting the workforce, training the workforce, getting peers. Yeah. Um, you know, building peers, Social building workers. pathways, all of the sorts of things that we need to get in place. That, that will be a challenge um, around how we wisely spend that money. But it does mean that we can look again at an incremental pathway and get some real clarity around supporting the good things that are already happening in many communities on very little resources and seeing how do we get a lot more support in there. So 455 million of that will go into basically early support, early intervention um, and through, through primary health care and non-government organisations. So that's a good thing. Yes. There'll, there'll be more step up and step down acute respite care, more goes in, more going into young people and more into drug and alcohol. The, so there's obviously growing the frontline uh, yep. mental health services, a 40 million boost to suicide prevention. So yep. they've obviously identified that that's uh, a big part that's come out of this right. inquiry as well, that yep. they want to help yep. try strategy, and... Strategy, getting a clear strategy, clear sense of direction. Extra nurses in schools. Yep. Uh, obviously, this is something that's close to your heart. Is that yep. something you're super proud of, to see that boost uh, in getting that, uh, that help towards Absol the schools? Absolutely. We saw, and this came out of a pilot that was put up in Canterbury after the earthquakes. Yes. And... Um, that they put extra support into the schools for young people and began to see quite early a shift um, in, in the, the well-being of young people, picking things up early, supporting them, getting the right help as early as we can. And so school, they've now extended that um, to all of our lower um, decile, which is our lower income schools where the communities have a lower income. And so that can only be a good thing. The workforce is predicted to double by 2023. Um, this obviously, like you mentioned earlier, presents another challenge to, to get people skilled or, or reskilled and into this uh, sector to try and help mm. cope with that. Mm. Uh, the, the funding is obviously also going to be required to help uh, with the training and the yeah. courses that need to be, because I understand that the curriculum currently loses money in mental health through universities at the moment so obviously to see that money go into that to help fund uh, reskilling and skilling up uh, the workforce for that for New Zealand 
you can't help but to feel somewhat optimistic with the way things are looking in New Zealand on the back of this. Oh, I think we are in a very optimistic um, period. And, and again, it will be around making sure that money stays in mental health, which is why the Commission becomes so important. But it's also about looking at a whole raft and range of things yep. that aren't necessarily medicalising misery. Yes. But getting in a whole lot earlier, doing a whole lot of things earlier, preventing trauma, supporting families earlier, supporting families to understand more and, and to um, be more connected. Yeah. You know? And I think, you know, when we look at the drug and alcohol area, it's even if you wanted to access help at the moment, if you were desperate for help, many people were. You, you couldn't get it. Yes. So we, we have to be able to build more services that respond. Now a lot of, you know, we run, um, in, my, in my day job, um, we run some drug and alcohol services and we have, you know, well-trained peers who work alongside clinicians. So we have peer and clinician partnerships that support people. And so it's looking more broadly than some of the workforces that we might have currently just went and got. Yes. So it's more broadly than very valuable nurses and doctors, but more broadly than that as well. Well, it's certainly looking like it's heading in the right direction. Obviously, as someone that's been a, a big influence and part of such a, an important panel to come up with these outcomes, uh, seeing it transpire into action is something I, I guess you're really looking forward to. Just uh, uh, this was meant to be thirty minutes, and we're obviously already at fifty-four. So this goes to show you how much uh, I've been wanting to talk to you, and how much stuff that you, uh, the experience that you have, uh, and the insights that you can provide for people is uh, truly appreciative. So uh, I'm I'm wary of your time, but leadership, leadership is something that seems to come up time and time again with you and the career that you've had so far. Tell me a little bit about your leadership style and, and where, where did the influence come from to be who you are? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I look around and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a country town in you know, southern New South Wales um, and to feel, although we weren't wealthy and we didn't have a lot of money, we ha I had parents that really cared about us and a father that was very involved in anything that moved and shook in town, you know. He went out and raised money for a boys club and for a town hall um, and was all for the ambulance. He was always doing things, spinning chocolate wheels, selling hot dogs. <laughs> had the community at heart. Yep. And had that strong sense of connection and community. So I was lucky enough to grow up in a community where I never doubted for a minute we didn't count. Yes. Or that, you know, people didn't look out for us or care for us. And I, I want every child to have that. And so it's, it's when you've had that, when you've got that base, and when you see people who don't necessarily have a lot of money or a lot of education, um, but change things locally, um, then I was lucky enough to um, have had an education that my father and mother didn't. Um, have have the same opportunity, and that in itself opened doors. Yes. So you know, I I was lucky enough to be able to go to university to end up with a PhD. That opened some doors for me, um, and doors where I could influence. 
and you know we grew up with some of those old adages like you know you get out there and you do what you can do you change what you can change um, and you take responsibility for the things you can so I think in a lot of ways um, leadership for me has been about that it's yes. been about um, not waiting for someone else to do it, not waiting for um, grabbing an opportunity when it comes and um, running hard and bringing people with you. If you're not everything to everybody, don't have all the answers. In mm. fact, I have very few. Um, but I know if you get a, ro a room full of people who've walked a particular pathway and you're trying to solve and make some of those things better and you listen and give them the opportunity to shape the future, you'll come up with some better options. And so that's been part of the process, really. Well, you're definitely leading by example and you are uh, have influenced, and I have no doubt that you will continue to influence beyond where you are today. Tell me, what, what's the future hold for for you? Where, where do you see yourself? Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of nearing the end of my career. <laughs> And um, so, but, but I don't see myself stopping, okay. you know, I might stop at some point um, yep. uh, formal paperwork or take on bits, bits of less, less intensive work, I, yep. I don't know. Um, for me, it's, you know, I've, I still got, um, you know, my father died last year, but I still have my mother alive. I've got grandchildren. Yes. And so creating memories good experiences and memories is really important to me so very strong family connections so i see you know going on regular holidays going and visiting them and being able to do that's really really important and i live in a community that i love and so there's lots of things in my local community so i think as you get older we we also have to look at older people's mental health and yes. so many isolated lonely mm. people how do we actually do that so I'll be part of making sure that I remain positive connected and do things well New Zealand is certainly lucky to have you and uh, and I'm very uh, grateful for the time that you've given me here today on this podcast so uh, Dr Barbara Disley I just want to say thank you for everything that uh, that you've spoken about today and all the insights you provided and what a journey and what a life and uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty more to come uh, but thank you for the service and the influence you've had to date on mental health. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.